What we're going to do tonight is I'm going to share the story of Jesus. This is a format and a story that I grew up listening to. So uh, the church that I went started going to in kindergarten, all the way up through till the time I left for high school, this is what my pastor did every year. And even as a kid, I loved this service, to be reminded of the life of Jesus, all the way to the death of Jesus. And as Pastor Sean mentioned, we're going to end tonight. You'll know when it's over. It'll be dark. We're going to light candles as people come into the life of Jesus, and we're going to put them out as people turn and, and leave. The last candle to go out, spoiler alert, will be Jesus' candle. But as Pastor Sean said, if you want to stay tonight in this space and in this room and just sit and be quiet, it's something we don't do very often in our culture. So you're invited to stay and to be in the presence of God, to think about what is he saying to you? What, is he, what has he done for you? And if you want to go outside and talk with friends, meet new friends, you're welcome to do that out in the commons. In the book of John, it opens like this. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Shortly before Jesus was born, Rome seemed to control the world. Now, it's not accurate to say that they controlled the entire world, but it, it sure seemed like it. They controlled everything from the Tigris and the Euphrates River to the east all the way to Great Britain in the west. And among Rome's lesser-known subjects in the country of Israel, in the northern part of Israel, in the region known as the Galilee, there lived a man whose name was Joseph. And Joseph was betrothed to this young peasant girl named, anyone? Mary, that's right. Now, curiously enough, though, it was said that she had never been intimate with a man, but nonetheless, she was expecting. And it made absolutely no sense for Joseph to do it, but he made the decision to go ahead and stay with her. As a matter of fact, he went through the entire process so that they could become married. And when she was about to deliver that child, something very unfortuitous happened. Caesar Augustus, who was the ruler of the Roman Empire, he decided to flex his rather formidable muscle. And he wanted to know exactly how many people he ruled over in his empire. So he decided to do a head count. As you can imagine, at that time, in that place, in that era, that wasn't exactly easy to do. No internet. 
So what he decided to do, at least in Israel, was to have the male head of the household report with his family to the place where that man was born. In Joseph's case, that meant that they would go from the northern part in the Galilee down to the central part near the city of Jerusalem to the little town called Bethlehem. Now, at this point in history, Bethlehem was a tiny little village. It wouldn't have been an impossible trip for them to make. Uh, They would have done it at least once a year, if not more, for them to go and visit Jerusalem for the festivals, for the high holy days. But with a wife who's nine months pregnant, that poses some other challenges. You think about nowadays, doctors won't let a woman on an airplane without doctor's permission after like month six, month seven, and now we're talking about much more than a comfy airplane ride. She would have to ride a donkey at nine months. But what kind of choice did she have? So uh, Mary and Joseph, they make their way to Bethlehem. Unfortunately, they found that there's no place for them to stay. Now, it wasn't as it's often portrayed, like someone was trying to be mean to them or rude to them. There was just no room. There were so many people coming together for the same reason at the same time in the same place. In any case, an innkeeper took pity on this young woman and found her a place, a place ordinary, ordinarily filled with animals. And there, in that setting, in those smells and sights and in that warmth, In the view of these animals, Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And his name was? Jesus. That's right. Jesus. So at the same time that that was taking place inside the city, outside of the city, we are told that there were these shepherds there in the terraces that surround the hillside. And these shepherds were watching their flocks, doing their shepherdly things, hanging out, working, ordinary nights. These sheep were raised to be used as the sacrifices in the temple. That night the shepherds were minding their own business, just going about a night's work, when, when all of a sudden they were confronted with, anyone know? Angels. That's right, angels. See, the kids know. Angels. All of a sudden an angel shows up and says, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And immediately we're told, that the angels told them to go to Bethlehem and check it out for yourselves. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't just one angel. There were a multitude of angels. There was this angel choir all of a sudden in the dark, and they were present and praising the Lord. It was quite the scene, quite the concert. And then as quickly as the choir showed up, they disappeared into the night sky. So what were the shepherds to do with that news? Well, they were so intrigued and they were so caught off guard, they figured, we've got to go and see this for ourselves. 
We've got to check it out. They ran into the city and they scoured the place. And sure enough, guess what they found? They found Mary and they found Joseph and they found this baby Jesus exactly as it was told to them. And they were stunned. And then they were so excited about what they had found. They couldn't keep the news to themselves and they ran and they told anybody that would listen about what had just happened about their work and the night and the angels and the baby and this couple. They told everyone they knew. Forty days later, we know that Mary and Joseph presented themselves in the temple for the purification rites. And there they ran into two very unique people. They ran into an old man named Simeon. And they ran into an elderly woman, bless her, Anna, a prophetess. These two people were excited to see this baby. And when they saw the baby, when they laid their eyes on this child, they celebrated and they broke out into praise that God had allowed them to stay alive long enough to see God's Messiah, the chosen one, with their very eyes. Now, word began to spread throughout the city, around the area. Could this be true? Could the Messiah have been born? As a matter of fact, word continued to spread, not just there, but around the region, And pretty soon, there were others who heard the news. There were some, we called them magi, magicians, people who looked to the stars and listened. And they began to get this sense that something had happened, that someone had been born. And they followed the star. These philosophers, these magi, they followed the star and were guided to the very spot where this baby lay. And they came, and they too were excited, and they brought their presents, and they worshipped him, and they gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Presents fit for a king. Now we know that after an unusual first couple of years, during which time then Joseph and his little family, they, they had to go down to Egypt, really to save the baby's life. And then they came back. It was safe to return. And rather than going back to Bethlehem where Jesus was born, they returned back to their roots. They went back to their home. They went back to Nazareth where Jesus would grow up. Now, Nazareth, again, at this time in human history, it's a tiny little place. Archaeologists say that probably during this era, there were maybe 300 residents. Just a little bit more than what's in this room tonight. You can imagine that as your hometown. And though it was small, it was located on a major trade route, so you would have heard all sorts of languages being spoken, and you would have had the sense that you were kind of in the midst of a lot of activity, and Jesus would have grown up in that place. And we know that that Jesus' parents, from the time that he was young, encouraged Jesus to grow in his relationship with the Father. As a matter of fact, he probably would have prayed the prayer that every other young Jewish boy and girl learned to pray at night, Psalm 31, 5, into thy hand I commit my spirit. We know that as Jesus was growing up, he would have attended the synagogue probably a few times a week. He would have gone into Jerusalem a few times a year to celebrate the high holy days. We know that he would have learned the Shema Israel like every good Jew. Shema Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, 
Adonai Echad, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What an incredible place for a little boy to grow up. On, on any day, Joseph could have taken Jesus and gone out to the southern part of the city and looked out and said, look at the history around us here. Look, son, there's Mount Carmel. That's where Elijah, the great prophet, fought with the prophets of Baal. Or look, son, over there, there's Megiddo. That's where all sorts of amazing battles had taken place. Uh, there, son, that's Mount Gilboa, where Saul was slain. Or he could have pointed all the way clear down to the south and said, you can't quite see it, son. But if you could see that far, you would see Jerusalem, the holy city. Now, we do know, though, when Jesus was somewhat younger, we don't know exactly when, but we know that his father died, Joseph. And it really caused, a, really, a, a shift in the family dynamic. Jesus, as the oldest, he had brothers and sisters. He would have kind of essentially become the man of the house, providing for them, caring for them, caring for his mother Mary. And then it's really interesting to note that Jesus, growing up, going through the teenage years, yes, Jesus went through puberty, and then Jesus lived in this tiny little town in relative obscurity for decades. <laughs> it is crazy to me that God's rescue plan for the world could be, be born and live and many people not even know about it for decades. When Jesus was about 30 years old, again, apparently maybe the brothers and sisters were able to care for themselves. It was no longer necessary for him to be at home. That's when he begins to emerge into the public eye. We know that one day Jesus went out to meet his cousin, Anyone know his cousin's name? John. John the baptizer. The history of John the Baptist, it's, it's fascinating. He grew up kind of out in the wilderness alone. He was this guy who was as rough cut as they come. He spoke as harshly as he dressed. He was known to wear this cloak made from the hair of camels, the same hair they would make tents out of. And we know that he ate locusts and wild honey, and he was kind of this um, take-no-prisoner kind of approach. He called sin, sin. He wasn't worried about what other people thought about it. He wasn't a respecter of persons. He called people to repent. He called people to repentance. And people responded to him. That's what was so surprising. He spoke the truth, and they were moved. And it wasn't just a few. It wasn't even just by the hundreds, but by the thousands. People started coming. And you could find John on most days down on the banks of the Jordan River where John would be found baptizing people. And that's ultimately how he got his nickname, John the Baptist. And with John you found all these sorts of people that were intrigued, curious. What is God doing? What is God saying? As he's calling people to repent. 
one day. We know that John was out there baptizing in the Jordan River, and all of a sudden, Jesus shows up in front of John. That's a shocker. And Jesus was requesting to be baptized by his cousin, and that threw John for a loop. He didn't know what to say. John was like, well, I I can't baptize you. I need you to baptize me. Now, again, remember, John the Baptist was someone that the crowds began to think maybe he was the Messiah. But John said, no, 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 you got it wrong. John said, I indeed baptize with water, but there is one who is mightier than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And now here's Jesus standing in front of him. John's like, I need to be baptized by you. Jesus looked at him and said, permit it to be so. So John did. He baptized Jesus in the waters of the Jordan. And it was an amazing scene as John lowered Jesus down into the water and brought him back up again. The scripture tells us that there was a voice that came from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father's words of blessing, affirmation, spoken over Jesus. Now, we know that immediately Jesus would then be driven into the wilderness where he would be tempted by Satan himself for 40 days and 40 nights. And the temptation that Jesus experienced there in the wilderness, it was real. The Bible says that no temptation has overtaken us except that which is common to man. And the same thing that is true for us was true for Jesus. He was tempted just as we are. He was tempted with things that would be unbelievably desirable for him. And yet, this was the beauty of Jesus' time in the wilderness. Whereas Israel, so many years ago, in their 40 years of wilderness temptation, they gave in. They were disobedient. So now Jesus, in his 40 days in the wilderness, he was obedient, and he stood on the word of God. He stood on the word by the Spirit, and he said, it is written, it is stated, it is written, until finally Satan departed from him, until the Bible says, an opportune time. Now, we know that not long after that, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee and he ran across some brothers, Peter, Andrew. Anyone know what they did for work? Yeah, fishermen by trade. And Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Next, Jesus found another set of brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee. Excuse me, James, John, sons of Zebedee, or as they came to be known, sons of thunder. You can kind of guess their personality type. Another set of brothers, uh, Jesus came one time and found Philip and talked to Philip. And Philip was so excited about what he heard and saw in Jesus that Philip then went and found his brother Nathaniel. And he said, hey, bro, hey, Nathaniel, guess what? I think I found the Messiah. Nathaniel was like, what are you talking about? Who is this? Oh, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel's response is classic. Can anything good come from Nazareth? You gotta be kidding me. Montesano? 
No offense. <laughs> Tiny town. The Messiah from Nazareth. Right. Jesus then invited another set of brothers, Matthew, James. Matthew is an interesting one to invite to the team. Matthew, he could have been seen as a Roman collaborator because Matthew, anyone know what he did for a living? Yeah, he's a tax collector. Which meant that he made his money by ripping off people. He made his money gouging his countrymen. He made his living on the backs of his Jewish friends, and Jesus invited him to come. Who else did Jesus invite to the team, to the party, to the group? Simon the Zealot, Simon Zelotes. Again, Jesus never consulted me on who he picked, but this is fascinating. I'm going to invite a tax collector, an employee of Rome who rips people off and stands for everything that Simon then hates. Simon says, overthrow Rome. We're the zealot party. Down with Rome. Revolution. And now you've got a tax collector and a zealot sharing bunk beds. Like, there may have been nice that Simon like, looks over at Matthew. He's like, is there any way I can just get rid of him? The next addition to the crew, Thomas, the skeptic by nature, which again, a, a curious invitation. If you're trying to begin a, a movement, why would you invite someone who may ask a lot of questions? Someone who may not accept everything you have to say. Didn't seem to bother Jesus. Next, he invited a guy named Thaddeus. Who's Thaddeus? I don't know. And then last but not least... Thaddeus. Last but not least. Anyone know the last one that I haven't named yet? Judas. Judas. Now there's someone with promise. There's someone his LinkedIn profile was top notch. They made him the treasurer, put him in charge of the money. We'll talk about Judas. There you have it. The 12. The 12 disciples. These 12 had seemingly nothing in common. Nothing. Well, that's not totally true. The one thing that they had in common is Jesus. And because of relationship with Jesus, it made their other tribes and factions fade to the background and take second level Unity in diversity around Jesus. We know that these guys spent every moment of their lives together, 24 and 7, for a period of about three years. When Jesus said, follow me, like he wasn't joking. Like, come on, <laughs> leave your job, leave your home and follow me. And they walked together and they talked together and they laughed together and they cried together and they played together. They became friends. And over this period of three years, they didn't really have anything else. In fact, there was a time that someone else came to join their band 
And Jesus looked at him and smiled and said, Well, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have a nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Saying, essentially, if you're looking to get it rich, like you're looking in the wrong place. Along the way, Jesus was was teaching, always teaching, telling stories, sharing truth, explaining what God is like. He kept talking about this thing called the kingdom. Jesus told lots of stories. Simple stories for simple people. One day he told this story about a man who was a sower broadcasting seed. And he used that story and the seed and the ground that the seed landed on to talk about and tell a story and teach them about God's truth. He taught them about God's word. He taught them about the different conditions of receptivity that either takes in his word or not. We know that he told story after story about different things that were somehow related. So he told a story once about a man who had a hundred sheep and yet he lost one. And the owner sought and sought and sought until he could find his lost sheep. He told another story about a woman who had 10 coins and lost one of the coins. And that woman diligently swept and swept the room until she found that lost coin. He told another story about another man who had a lost son. Actually, he had two lost sons. One who was lost at home and one who was lost far away, one who appeared to be very loyal, and one who had squandered everything. And he told the story that that man never stopped loving his sons. And Jesus used the story about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son to talk about the fact that God loves lost things. And that God loves lost people. And that God is the great pursuer who will stop at nothing to rescue and redeem back to himself. Jesus told the story about a man who built his house on sand. And he compared the man who built his house on the sand to another one who built his house on what? You're tracking. Good. And he asked him, like, which kind of foundation makes sense for your house to be built on, on on sand or on rock? And he was asking them to examine what kind of foundation were they building their lives, a, a solid, obedient one, one who hears my word and does it, or not? The Bible says that the common people heard him gladly. They loved listening to Jesus. They loved being around Jesus. There's a reason for that. People could actually understand what he was saying. He wasn't talking over their heads. He wasn't using uber-religious language. He was simply speaking in the language of the people. And his followers began to grow one after another. And not just because of what he said, but because of what it was like to be with him. You see, there was something about being with Jesus. It made you want to be with him too. 
All sorts of different people came to be around Jesus. The kinds of people who were rejected, the kinds of people who especially were rejected by the religious leaders, the rejects, the outcasts, the marginalized people, those who were demon-possessed, those that were lame, those who were blind, those who were deaf, the people who had issues. Like, people had issues, all sorts of issues. But when their issues came into the presence of Jesus, somehow those issues changed because he loved them. He loved them. Sometimes it seemed like everybody loved Jesus, but the truth is that not everyone did. And over time, the stories got around. Religious people started viewing Jesus as a threat. He was gaining too much influence. He had too many people following after him. He could take them in a dangerous direction. Besides that, Jesus was undermining their authority. He seemed to be undermining their traditions. People were actually saying that he was the Christ. More than that, he taught with greater authority than they did, people said. And who was he anyway? He's no rabbi. Where was he trained? What degrees did he have? So Jesus knew when things were heating up that uh, it was time to escape. And so he and the, the guys decided to move up north near Caesarea Philippi, the very northern part of the Galilee. And there one day in the city, noted for the worship of false gods, they were sitting around and Jesus turned to the 12 and said, hey, who, who are people saying that I am? And that really got them talking. That was a good small group discussion. Like, well, some, some are saying that you're John the Baptist. Others are saying you're Elijah, come back to life again. Oh, some say you're one of the prophets. You know how conversations go. You're somebody. And then without even skipping a beat, Jesus then looked directly at them and said, well, what about you? Who do, who do you say that I am? <laughs> Peter. I love Peter. Oh, ooh, First one to speak, first one to throw out his opinion. He chimes in, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't say no. Like, no, 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 that's ridiculous. No, he doesn't say that. He just says you need to keep that to yourself. And then he began to reveal to them what would happen as the son of man, that he would be rejected, that he would suffer, that he would be put to death but that three days later he would rise again. When, when Peter heard that news, he couldn't handle it. Peter then said, no, far be it from you, Lord. That is not going to happen. They are not going to come for you. And you would think that Jesus would like applaud that kind of loyalty. Like it's good to know that someone has my back. But that's not what Jesus said. Actually, Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. You're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. These things must happen. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem for everything that was going to take place. So on the way to Jerusalem, some interesting things did happen. At one point, the mother of James and John, she kind of sidled up next to Jesus one day and said, Jesus, dear, I've got a great idea. Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, when you come in power, I've got a great idea. How about my boys, James and John? They would look great 
on your right hand and on your left. Can you, can you promote them there? And now Jesus could have rebuked her like he did Peter, but he didn't do that to her. Instead, he said, that isn't for me to determine. But then he says, but I will tell you this, that the one who is greatest in my kingdom will be the servant of the rest. And I don't think that's what she expected to hear as she's jockeying for her sons to get the prime seats of power. But Jesus says, my kingdom's an upside-down kingdom. And the way this thing works is that greatness is defined by those who serve. When Jesus got to the bottom of the ascent that would take him up to Jerusalem, there at Jericho, we know that he healed a blind man named Bartimaeus. Blind Bart, who wouldn't take no for an answer, who cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd's like, shh, Bart, keep it down. But he cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus healed him. Jesus also had lunch with a short little tax collector named Zacchaeus. A wee little man was he. Much to the chagrin of the religious leaders. Like, who is he hanging out with? And then Jesus made his way up to Jerusalem. You know, when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, it was planned down to the very last detail. We know that when other rulers had come in, they would come in with a display of pomp and circumstance, a display of power. Ruling, conquering leaders come in on horses, on white stallions. And as Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he came in riding a what? A donkey. Just as the scriptures had foretold. A symbol of a king, a humble king, who comes in peace. Now, the Mount of Olives, if you've ever been there before, it's just solid rock. You can hear someone speaking there from long ways away. So when Jesus was up on the top of the mount, beginning to descend down the mountain through the Kidron Valley, down through the eastern gate, the crowds began to gather around him. And we know that because of the timing, there were hundreds of thousands of people there because it was Passover. They'd all come to celebrate the festival. And the crowds gathered and the cheering and the shouting and the yelling it would, have, it would have just reverberated. It would have splashed up over the walls of the city. The people came to yell, Hosanna, Hoshana, God save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They took off their cloaks and they laid it on the ground. They, they snapped off the palm branches and they waved them in the air like they just don't care. It was absolutely amazing. What a scene. Spectacular. Hosanna. God save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Cloaks down. Palm branches waving. It was Jesus mania. It got to such a point that the religious authorities looked at each other and said, look, the whole world's going after him. But that wouldn't prove to be true. It was a fabulous scene for a moment for a very short period of time, but it would take a huge turn. You know, people, 
they began to realize, wait a minute. That's not my king. Man, my king, when he comes, he's going to take care of Rome. None of this humble donkey stuff. Let's go fight. Others were scared as they heard the rumblings of the religious leaders. Like, you don't want to be on that list. You don't want to be associated with that kind of a crowd. And so people backed off and turned away. Word began to spread that the authorities were against him. It backed off even more people. In fact, so many people began to leave. So many people began to turn away. there came this point when Jesus, he came and he, he looked at the 12. And he said, what about you? Are you going to leave me too? As we come to what we call now Holy Week unfolded, on Monday, we know that Jesus was back in the city. He came to the Temple Mount came to the temple that had become a circus. It's where all the, the buying and the selling of the sacrifices took place. And it never should have gotten to that place, but it did. And it was the cash cow for the high priest and his family. They made money shortchanging people and gouging them coming and going. And Jesus on Monday walked into the temple mount and he fashioned a whip and he drove the money changers off the temple mount and he overturned the table and this was his critique. He said that you have turned what is a house of prayer for the nations into a den of thieves. And as you can imagine, if you flip over tables in the temple, that doesn't exactly make you more popular. That's risky. And more people backed away. People thought, it's over for him. And we know that more and more people left. They didn't want to be seen associated with someone who was despised by the authority. That's Monday. He's just getting his week started. On Tuesday, Jesus then went back to the same place. He went back to the Temple Mount. That's courageous. He was just there the day before, overturning tables, driving people out with a whip, declaring it to be a den of thieves, and you go back the next day. And there, Jesus was teaching, and the religious leaders had sent plants into the crowd to try and trip him up. Teacher, we have a question, teacher, is it, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What should we do? Should we pay taxes? Oh, that's a tricky question. That's an impossible question, right? If he says... Nah, don't pay your taxes. Now he's an insurrectionist. If he says, yes, pay your taxes, everyone who hates Rome hates him. How do you answer that one? Jesus says, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What? Incredible wisdom. 
Teacher, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Ah, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's good. Spot on. Teacher, teacher. Finally, they left frustrated, unable to foil him. And they were more frustrated with Jesus than when they had begun. On Wednesday, we know that Jesus spent a quiet day of reflection in Bethany. Bethany is the small, really suburb, an ancient suburb of Jerusalem, two miles outside of the city. Bethany had history. Lots of interesting things happened there in Bethany. Raising Lazarus from the dead. And there in Bethany, while he was there, Jesus had dinner at the home of Simon a leper. The kind of people that Jesus loved to hang with blows me away. While he was there during that dinner, a woman named Mary came bursting in the scene, not caring about protocol, carrying an alabaster jar that she had worth more than a year's salary, and she doesn't care what's happening in the middle of the dinner party, and she bursts on the scene, and she cracks it open, and she anoints Jesus. Judas, the treasurer, came unglued. What's she thinking? She could have sold that stuff and given the proceeds to the poor. And you would, again, think that maybe Jesus would be like, yeah, it's a good idea. It's a little, it's a little over the top, a little lavish. But no, Jesus said to Judas, Judas, the poor you will have with you always, but me you won't. And he went on to say what a beautiful thing it was that she was anointing his body for burial. What's the burial thing all about? On Thursday, we know that Jesus celebrated the Passover with his 12 closest friends. And when they got to the house, there were no servants there to wash the feet of the disciples. And certainly, these guys weren't going to wash each other's feet. So they shared the meal with stinky feet. And after supper, Jesus took it upon himself to wash their feet. And it says that he girded himself with a towel as a servant, and he went around, and he said, just as I'm doing to you, I want you to do this for one another. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. What an act of radical love. And there, Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. And he applied the Passover to himself. And what an opportunity we have, even tonight, to participate in the same. There's a lot of people in the room but I'm going to invite you tonight. The elements for communion are here in the front. And if maybe you could send a representative from your family to come and get the elements, they may help us speed it up a bit tonight. But I invite you to come if you are one who has put your faith and trust in Jesus. 
to participate in the same that Jesus spent with his disciples. So I'm going to give us just a few seconds, a few minutes here. If you want to come and return to your seat with it, and then we'll take this together. Passover meal in celebration of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt as the blood of the lamb was applied on the doorpost of the house and the angel of death passed over. And Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples he said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup when he'd given thanks. And he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, I... I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus speaking of his body broken. Jesus speaking of his blood shed. As they were then reclining and talking that night, suddenly there was a very quick exchange. And not everyone knew what was happening, but all of a sudden Judas disappeared. And again, they weren't quite sure what had happened. Maybe he had to go shopping for supplies or something else was coming up. But Judas left into the darkness, into the night. And Jesus said to the rest, 
A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you love one another. And he said, by this will all people know that you are my disciples. By your political party. By your love for one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you love each other, love one another. And he spoke about his imminent and impending death one more time. And he kept talking about death, and it really bothered Peter. Peter's like, Jesus, not going to happen. You can count on me. They, like the rest of these clowns, they may, they may bail on you. They may turn on you, but not me. Jesus, you can count on me. I am here. Don't worry. I'm loyal. I don't care if everyone else fails you. I'll be there. And Jesus helped him understand that it wasn't going to happen that way. Jesus spoke to him and said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he would sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And when you return to me, strengthen the brethren. Beautiful words offered to Peter. Jesus didn't, or Peter didn't get it, but he would. After singing a hymn, they then left the upper room. They came down into the ancient city of David, through the valley, into an old olive orchard called Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, Jesus would ask these that were closest to him to watch and pray. Peter, James, and John, watch and pray. Watch and pray with me. Something they had done many times before. And as Jesus was there in the garden that night, we're told that his prayer became so earnest that his sweat became like drops of blood. And everything now was coming down to the moments where Jesus would take upon himself the sins of the world. Was that easy for Jesus? Absolutely not. That's why he's there in the garden. He's praying, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. When he then came back and gathered together with the rest of the crew, suddenly out of nowhere there was this band of people led by Judas, and Judas walked right up to Jesus and kissed him as a means of identification. He kissed him in betrayal. Peter's like, all the lights go on. Oh, it's happening. It's happening now. And so Peter then grabs his, his sword and he begins to swing to fight and defend himself. He ends up cutting off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus rebuked him. He told him to put his sword away. He says, the one who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And then Jesus picked up his ear and he put it back on. Jesus to the end, healing those who came to arrest him. Who is he? And then they took Jesus away. And we know at that point then that almost down to a person, they all left. And they backed away.
all those that had followed for so long. They too turned. Except for a couple, we know that John followed at a distance. We know that Peter went to track things down to see what would happen. Wow, that's impressive. I'm going to win. There we go. (laughs) Peter followed all the way to the courtyard of the high priest where a trial was about to get underway. Jesus disappeared into the building where this kangaroo court would take place. Peter was outside warming his hands by the fire. A servant girl recognized him. It's like, wait a minute, you belong to that guy. You're, you're one of his. Peter said, I, I don't know him. A little bit later, someone else comes up to Peter. Same accusation. Peter says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Meanwhile, as that's happening outside, inside, there's this ridiculous trial taking place. All sorts of false accusation against false accusation against Jesus. And yet Jesus wouldn't respond to any of it. The high priest wanted to act as though he had the facts, and he didn't. And he couldn't put Jesus to death by himself. But they sure could beat him badly, which is what they did through the night. Finally, they shoved Jesus out the door to go to the Sanhedrin. And just as they are pushing Jesus out the door, Peter, for a third time, is being asked, Wait a minute, you are one of his. And Peter then screams from the top of his lungs, I don't know the man. And as soon as those words left his mouth, he sees Jesus. We're told that Peter sobbed convulsively. Can you imagine that? He's the one for all this time they've been saying, I'm with you. I'll be yours to the end. They may bail, not me. And yet he's the one. Not once, not twice, three times he denies Jesus. That's why he lost it. He felt like a fraud. He felt like a failure. How could he face anyone again? We know that ultimately Jesus was taken to Pilate, who said, are you the king of the Jews? He says, it is as you say, with accusation after accusation after accusation being hurled at him, Jesus said nothing. And it was spooky. It really unnerved Pilate. It's like, what's going on? He's not even trying to defend himself. And in all reality, Pilate wanted to let Jesus go. In fact, he'd been warned by his wife who had a dream saying, like, get some distance from him. Wash your hands of him. And guess what? He didn't listen to his wife. So he's like, well, I know. I got an idea. Every Passover, every year, we release a prisoner. If I give them Jesus, surely they'll take him. They just threw a parade for the guy a few days ago. How about I give you Jesus? Oh, but they were ready for that one. A shout comes back from the crowd. Barabbas, we want Barabbas. 
like Barabbas, an insurrectionist, a murderer, a thief? Well, what about Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate wanted to defend Jesus. He wanted to help Jesus until someone else spoke up from the crowd and said, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar's. And at that point, it was over. There was nothing they could do, and he gave the word for Jesus to be beaten. We know that the first thing that happened was that Jesus was tied to a post, and he was stripped, and he was whipped with a whip embedded with, with bone and stone, and they began to beat him. And we know that the, when the first stripe was taken, the Bible says, by his stripes we are healed. And as the first stripe was taken, it would have cut to the bone. The Bible says that he took the punishment of our sins upon himself. And blood and flesh would have been everywhere. And many people, if not the majority of people, died during that process of scourging. And by the time they were done that time with Jesus, he was reduced to not even looking like a person anymore. And Jesus was drained of strength. He didn't have any strength. And that's when the soldiers decided to play the game of kings to mock him and abuse him. And they said, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. And they put a purple robe on him, the color of royalty. And they took a branch from a thorn bush and they formed a crown of thorns and they jammed it on his head and blood would have gushed down his face. And they beat on him and they spat on him and they bowed down in mockery to worship him. And they thought they were so funny. And then it was time. And they shoved him out into the street for him to carry his, his cross, the beam of the cross, to the side of the crucifixion up to Golgotha, the skull-shaped hill. But Jesus, he just spent the evening being beaten. He didn't have any strength left. He couldn't carry it. He just fell to the ground. And it didn't matter how many times they either kicked him or whipped him. He couldn't do it. So they finally they grabbed another person from the crowd, a man named Simon, a Cyrenian. He was just there to celebrate the Passover, and they conscripted him into carrying the cross. And when finally he got there to that place where they were to kill him, they placed him between, between two common criminals, and it was there on that place where he was crucified And as they started to crucify him, there was virtually no one left, save a few. Where was Andrew? Where was Thomas? Where was Thaddeus? Where were these guys? There were some women. There was his mom. There was a disciple, John. And as they drove the spikes through his hands, the sound would have ricocheted off the rocks. And they drove the spike through his feet. The Bible says that he uttered not a word. And the most terrifying moment of all would be when they would have lifted him up and they would have dropped him into place. And that terrifying moment when the full weight of his body slammed down to pull on his hands and the pain was absolutely unbearable. They created a word to describe it, excruciating out of the cross. It's really easy in church to say, hey, Jesus died for my sins. And we can say that so flippantly when we don't understand the price that he paid. Death by crucifixion came by asphyxiation, so the person who was crucified couldn't breathe. 
and the weight of their body would pull them down and they couldn't fill their lungs with air and he would do, the person would do their best to get another breath. But finally they could not hold themselves up and they would just have their body rip against the post and eventually they would give up and they would die. And we know that as Jesus hung on that cross, the Bible tells us that he spoke seven recorded sentences. On the cross, having been beaten and whipped and scorned and mocked, Jesus looked over those who were gathered around, and Jesus, first thing he said is, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And then he looked at a thief on one side of him who just minutes before had confessed faith in him. And he said to that man today, you will be with me in paradise. He looked at his mother at the foot of the cross and he looked to John, the beloved disciple, and he said, mother, behold your son and son, behold your mother. And he entrusted the care of his mother to his disciple John. And we know that then they even backed away. Somehow, in the midst of this, in this moment, Jesus felt the crushing weight of something that he had never experienced before. The sense of alienation that came from sin. The sin of the world that he came to bear. And he cried out from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no fluid left in his body. He was parched. He said, I thirst. And then recognizing what was about to happen, really the most triumphant statement of them all, Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. Paid in full. Tetelestai. The fulfillment of God's plan. All the promises, all the prophets, all the years pointing to this moment. And then finally he prayed the prayer that he had been taught to pray when he was a little boy growing up in Galilee. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then the Bible tells us, having said these words, that he breathed his last. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died, the land became dark. The earth quaked, the rocks split, and the veil of the temple was ripped in half from top to bottom. What had man done? What would God do?